Good morning. So thankful to be here with you this morning. Happy to see all of your smiling and even the not smiling faces this morning. Hopefully by the end of uh, today, if you came with a not smiling face, you can, uh, you can be smiling for what the Lord has done. I know that every day is not, um, every Sunday is not an ideal Sunday. Uh, I asked Stephen how he was doing this morning and he said, I'm okay. And I know that Stephen's being honest when he says that. Uh, if you might have been a part of another fellowship, he might have said, you know what, I'm just wonderful. It's a special Lord's Day today. Um, so uh, one of the things that I love about our church is uh, you get to see a little bit of the dirtiness and the messiness of life. You get to experience it along with each other. Uh, but there is a joy of being together. There's a joy of worshiping together, not only that, but walking through life together and uh, recognizing when people are just okay or when they're doing great or when they need a little bit more help. Um, but I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to be back uh, preaching the word in First Peter. I think our uh, reprieve that we took over the Advent season was great. It was helpful. It was useful. Um, I'm glad to be back in... First Peter, going through uh, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, gives me a sense of stability. Uh, one of the things I love so much about it is that um, I, you, hopefully, I know that I do this, and I, hopefully you do too, it's a continual process of thinking and meditating on the Word of God. Um, we know what we talked about last week, we know what we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, when we're going book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we know what we're going to talk about next week. And so there is the ability for you to continually process and meditate and think on uh, the Word of God. And so uh, I hope that you're taking advantage of that. I hope that this is not um, today. We've discussed this before, obviously, but this is just an exhortation for you today. hope today this is not the first time you've uh, read First Peter. I uh, hope it's not the first time you've read it recently, and I hope that God has uh, been allowing this um, verse, these verses to do an effect uh, on your life. So today our scripture that we'll be studying is 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12, born again to a living hope, we'll look at the evangelistic nature of our holy conduct would you pray with me this morning as we open God's word? Father God, you are holy and you call us to live holy lives like you. Lord, as a matter of fact, you call us to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And Lord, we understand that as flawed and uh, as broken individuals, we cannot live perfect lives. Lord, being perfect is more about what you have done, the work that you have done in our lives, the work you have accomplished through the cross of Calvary and through your resurrection. We understand that. But we also understand that, like Paul, though we have not attained it, we press on towards the mark of the high calling of Christ Jesus. We press on towards that mark of perfection. We'll never attain it this side of heaven. But it's still a goal that as Christians, as a people who are changed by the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, must pursue. Lord, help us to pursue holy, set-apart conduct, holy living, not only for our own spiritual health and, and mental state, but also for those around us who witness our lives 
and can be brought to you as a testimony from the testimony of our lives. Lord, thank you for Vintage Church. I believe, I don't think I'm wrong in this, I believe Vintage Church is a, test, is a, is a fruitful and gospel testimony of your work. And I'm grateful for the testimony that we give uh, on the vast majority of the time. Lord, we love you so much. We praise you. We ask you to bless this day, bless your word, help it to take hold, help it to take root in our lives, help us to be eternally changed by uh, what we hear and what we read today. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen. Up to this point in 1 Peter, uh, Peter has given us a, a, a strong lesson in theology and, and what is our primary motivation for living uh, unto the Lord and how we should pr- pursue these things. He has made it clear how we became who we are, how we became this people of a new identity. We learned in 1 Peter 1 that we were born again to a living hope, to a, to a genuine faith. In the last part of chapter 1, we were told to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of our calling. If we're called to a living hope, if we're born again to a living hope, that means we have new life. And so it would only be natural for a people who have a new life to live their life in that manner. And that's what Peter is telling us in in 1 Peter 1. That means that our spiritual walk must be proportional to the great cost of our salvation. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of your calling. Peter is saying the way we live, we should be trying to accomplish the goal of making our spiritual conduct proportional to the great cost that it costs to buy it for us. We should live in a manner worthy of our calling. Now Peter is going to spend lengthy time in the next part of the letter describing to the church at Asia Minor what this exactly looks like for them. Today we'll be in 1 Peter 2, verse 11 and 12, which starts a new section uh, in this letter from Peter. This main section mainly deals with the post-conversion response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 2, 3 through 10, which we did uh, right before Advent season, Peter describes a new identity that these dispersed people have attained. They have been called to holy living, to be priests to all who would hear that wonderful gospel. Today we see Peter give us a negative and a positive thought on this new identity. He first says the works of this new identity can be compromised very easily, that we must guard ourselves. And then he challenges us to live in a way that glorifies God and motivates others to submit to God in salvation. Those are the two thoughts that I want you to keep in place in your head today as we go through 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, that our gospel transformation, our walk with the Lord can be compromised very quickly with just a few short moves. But also the positive aspect of that is that what we do matters and that people can be brought to salvation just by the way we live our lives. Now I know that that uh, 
that we're going to discuss that and lay that out later. That is not our primary method of evangelism, to just live good lives and, and hope that people come to salvation. But it is a way that people come to salvation. One of the most important aspects of this new identity is how we share it with others. We'll examine in verse 11 and 12 today the evangelistic nature of holy conduct. The evangelistic nature of holy conduct. 1 Peter 2 11 and 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We have discussed the importance of holy conduct an innumerable amount of times, and, and we will continue to do that as long as I have breath in my lung. How this conduct affects the church and how it affects others is super important. It's important not only for our personal and mental health and to honor the Lord, but it's also important for the way that our life preaches the gospel. Oftentimes I've warned you about preaching the gospel with your mouth and, and it's not just your life. Some Christians wrongly believe that if they live good lives, that they live upright lives, that they can from a distance shout gospel proclamation to the world. This is just not true. The gospel is not always and primarily just a if you build it, they will come sort of thing. If you live your life well, that people will just flock to you and be like, oh my goodness, what is this? that you are doing these good behaviors. It must be because you have Jesus. This doesn't happen exactly that way. It's also something we can't shout from afar. Like the church is not, the church and our community together is not sort of like a school bus that we drive through impoverished gospel communities, uh, communities that are impoverished with the gospel. That's the rest of the world. We can't drive by and say, Jesus saves. I'm proof. As a matter of fact, the gospel and the gospel effect in our lives is a war. It's a, it's a war we must wage not only within our own souls, but it's a war we wage out in the community. We must be similar. We must be entrenched uh, in this war. Uh, but it is true that the lives we live have deep, great, eternal, lasting impact on People. We must be proclaimers of the gospel with our mouths. The Bible calls us to be proclaimers in word and deed. But our conduct does bring the gospel to light. And people will be saved by the way we live our lives. People will be saved by the way we live our lives. I hope that you're paying attention because that is, that's a heavy thought. That's a heavy thought. It doesn't say it here, but I wonder... If we can take the other logical conclusion, if people will be saved by the conduct of our lives, I know every man is responsible for himself, but what happens if our conduct does not measure up? I'll leave that for you to decide. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 1 Corinthians 9 speaks of the cheerful giver and how others in the church and outside the church will glorify God 
their lives will be impacted by the contributions of the cheerful giver. These are just two of many others that go along the way of what Peter is saying here. I want to assure you of something today, that what you do and how you live your life has deeper and more lasting impact than just on your own soul and your own spiritual health. What you do matters, not only for your personal spiritual growth, but also others who are watching. It starts in the home with what our children see, uh, but it also goes outside the home and in the public square. Uh, I, during the Christmas, December, Christmas seasons, I tend to spend more time at home because the work slows down, whatever, whatever, you know, maybe I'm choosing to spend more time at home too because I'm lazy or whatever, but that's what happens. And you never realize how challenging your children are until you spend a lot of time with them at home. Now, wives, you may be like, I've been trying to tell you this for a long time, but um, you never realize how challenging your children are until you spend a bunch of time with them at home. And it is even more challenging when you realize that they are the way that they are because of you. They are emulating what they see. And so I, I guess, um, I don't know, that may just be a confession or it may be helpful to you to see that what you do matters. What you do matters. Your children are going to see your behavior, your wife, your husband, your family, those that work with you, those around you, they're going to see your behavior and they are going to, if you have enough influence, and sometimes even if you don't think you have influence, they are going to see your behavior and they're going to emulate your behavior. They're going to act accordingly. We must live a life that matters because what we do for Christ, what we do in this time matters. There is an advantage to Christians, though, when we live holy lives. We live in such a counterfeit world that people are really looking just for something real. They're looking for something genuine. They're looking for others who they can say, if I talk to Blake Bostick right now, and if I talk to Blake Bostick a year from now, I'm going to get generally the same person. Now, Blake's going to grow and he's going to change, but I'm going to get generally the same person. Christians are at a, at a great advantage in the culture we live in because we could talk to somebody today and we could talk to somebody 24 hours from now and they wouldn't be the same person. This world is ever-changing. It's unstable. The rules are, I would say that they're broken, but they don't exist they just don't, they're just not there. What people are looking for, I hope what you're looking for, what I'm looking for, and I hope despite all of my faults, it has been a characteristic that has drawn you to me and our church is someone who is consistent over long periods of time to be true to the person that they are ascribing to, to be. While there is an element of the Christian faith that works to accommodate and to blend into the culture, those around you will respect you and even glorify God when you appear to be different to the culture than the same. 
In our text today, Peter is informing us that our conduct goes a long way in the work for evangelism. I want to point out some important truths how holy conduct is the most important aspect of someone changed by Christ and is evangelistic in nature. First thing I want you to see uh, from our passage today is that holy conduct is an attainable goal. Before we start into the effects of holy conduct, you must understand that living holy lives for a person who is changed by a holy God is an attainable goal. It's not something that is work that's helpful for pastors. It's not something that works for deacons. It's not something that works for old people. Okay, you, I, 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 there was this tendency when I was a child or a younger and childish mind, at least, even maybe in my early 20s, to think that older people can live holy because they've lived long enough to figure out what it's like to live holy. Friends, I want to tell you, the goal of holy conduct is an attainable goal for Christians of all ages. One of the most uh, disheartening things that has ever happened to me in my life is a conversation I had with a young lady many years ago, and she was, uh, she was a, and I've told you this story before, but I'll tell you again for those who hadn't heard it, she was a foreign exchange student who was a part of uh, Boulevard, the church that I was a part of before Vintage Church. And I remember having a conversation with her in the foyer of the church, and, and, sh- and I was given a gospel presentation, and I thought I did a pretty good job. I think I did. I think I did the gospel justice at that moment, and she said, uh, this is something I can see you doing in here I can see the people doing in here, but I don't see how it happens out of there. And she pointed outside. And, um, you know, we went away that day. She did not make a profession of faith. And then a few months later, a couple days before she was supposed to return to her home, she died in a car accident. And I am reminded of that often, not to make this an emotional story at all. I'm not trying to grasp your emotions, but I'm reminded, uh, it reminded me and it pointed to me that many people think that holy living is something that you can only do within the four walls of a church building, or you can only do within the context of church gathering. But holy conduct is something that is expected, required, and really it's something that must happen if the Spirit of God lives in your life. Part of the problem with Flavia that day was that the example, that was her name, sorry, Flavia, is the example that she received of a person who professed Christ, in, at least in this country, was not an example worthy of emulating. The witnesses she was around of Christ were not examples worthy of emulating. It would be easy for somebody like that to believe and see that holy conduct is not an attainable thing if the people that are around you that are supposed to be most holy, that are called to holiness, don't live that way. The free love of the 60s and the 70s gave birth to the time we live in today. First came the people who broke all the rules and smashed them to smithereens. Then came their children and grandchildren who lived by no rules at all. For the Christian who is bound to the glory of Christ, this cannot be so. The Lord has given us an exact standard to follow. Be holy 
for I am holy. Now, a lot of this is predicated on the fact that Christ is in us and he is our holiness, for sure. We are redeemed, we are saved by the work of Christ. But there is an expectation of holy living amongst the people of God. There is a set standard that we live like Christ, which we know to live like Christ. We live like Christ because of the work that he has done for us, but we also live like Christ because no one can receive Christ. No one can receive such dynamic power and not be changed. Peter starts out his message on practical living by telling his audience that holy living is possible. It's attainable. For a Christian, it's not enough to say, thank you, God, for saving me, but this life is hard, and I guess I am who I am. I, I am who I am. The reason I'm doing the things I'm doing today is because I am who I am. But holy living is possible and it's attainable. And for the Christian, when we are redeemed by Christ, we say, Christ, I understand that life is difficult, but I also understand that you died to kill the things about me that dishonor you. And so even though I am who I am, I know that I want to be who you want me to be. For Christians, we have faith that the power that saves us, the power of God which saves us, is the power that he uses to make us into the image of his son. Peter believed that it was possible for the people to change, and I do too. But the only way I've ever seen effective change in someone's life is when something major happens to them. No one who ever has a cushy, comfortable life, no one who's ever had an easy life uh, sees dynamic change without something major happening to them. And, and what I think the most effective change, where I've seen the most effective change, that major event is Christ and Him transforming our lives. There's nothing more major than the gospel taking hold of a person. So Peter says to these churches at Asia Minor, I urge you, my friends, my brothers. Now, this is similar language to what Paul uses in Romans 12. He says, Paul in Romans 12 says, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Paul said in Romans 12, it's reasonable to expect you to present your bodies, your life, as a sacrifice to God because he has sacrificed so much for you. And he has brought his dynamic power down upon you. So the reasonable expectation for someone who has received so much is to give back the same. He calls them beloved brothers. He, he urges them as beloved brothers. Peter feels a deep connection to these Christians that's not just emotional. He feels a deep connection to their plight. He understands that the Christian life is difficult. Remember, at one moment, <coughs> Peter, uh, Jesus is blessing Peter for the knowledge that he has. And he says, Peter, this only comes from the Lord. And then the very next moment he's saying, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, adversary. You don't understand what you're talking about. Remember, Peter was ready to take up the sword for the Lord. And then he was ready to deny the Lord three times before the rooster crowed. Peter understands. He says, I urge you, brothers. Peter is saying, I understand how difficult it is to follow the Lord. But I urge you, brothers, I know what you're experiencing, but I urge you, brothers, I know that you will fail, but I urge you, brothers, to present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice, to live in a way that honors the Lord. I know that it's costly. I know that it's difficult. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, Peter is not only saying that it is possible to live in a holy manner, but that it is the only way. By saying sojourners and exiles, he is reminding the people that they have no other options. This is your life. You have redeemed by you have been redeemed by Christ. This is your life. Holy living is your life. There are no other options. You act like the world, friends, Christian, brother and sister, you are still an outsider. Don't be expected to be a Christian and to be called a friend by those around you just because you act like them. It's actually kind of they more think you're silly. I, I know that sometimes you think you know, or sometimes we think it's like cool and acceptable, but really they think we're silly to, to have all of the benefits of acting like the world, but be restricted by this Christian thing. It seems more logical just to be like them without the restrictions of this Christian thing. Friends, you act like the world, you're still restricted. You're not a friend of them. You're Still on the other team, but you act like Christ and you're still an outsider. But if you emulate Christ, at least you have all of the blessings that come along with that. This term he uses for sojourners is also translated as resident aliens. You're resident aliens. It's a similar term Abraham used in Genesis 23 when he was asking for a plot of land to bury uh, himself and Sarah. I urge you, brothers, aliens, as resident aliens, to hold high the banner of your sojourning. Live life in such a way that it appears, live life in such a way that you are confident in the way you're living and you are holding high the fact that you are in this world but not of this world. How does Peter suggest that they take ownership of their citizenship of heaven and their lack of citizenship on earth. He says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. I urge you, brothers, as sojourners, as foreigners, as strangers, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Take ownership of who you are. This is not your home, and these worldly rules are not your rules. Hold high the banner of the God who saved you by working to live for him in a world that is increasingly hostile. To his works. Live in a manner that honors your new life and not rewards the flesh of the old life. Friends, a godly life is necessary proof of eternal life, and it is holy conduct, holy living is attainable because of the Spirit of God that lives in us and the expectation that the power of the Spirit brings upon the Christian life. Peter informed us in verse 114 of 1 Peter that our life should not be shaped by ungodly behaviors. Now he is telling us in 1 Peter 2 that the duty of every Christian is to wage war against the desires that want to drag us back from whence we came. 
Holy conduct is attainable. Holy conduct, secondly, gives peace to your soul. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, he says, which wage war against your soul. There is a spiritual war that is going on. Sometimes the war looks like all-out chaos and bloodshed. I would liken this to more obvious sin, more obvious failure. Sometimes the war is total carnage. But sometimes there are other times where the war is more subtle. This is sort of the spy, the spying nature of the enemy, where the war is more subtle. We excuse things because they seem small. We excuse sin. We excuse ungodly behavior because they seem small. Or maybe it's because we are unaware that our behavior displeases God. This is sort of the covert tactic of the enemy. The enemy would rather there not be bloodshed. He would rather there be secret assassins. I mean, he would rather not be mass carnage and bloodshed. He would rather there be secret assassins. He would rather not draw attention to the work that he is trying to do. He would rather do his work in secret. We're in a war, friends, and the tactics of the enemy are great. We must understand this. This is why understanding the gospel, this is why reading the Bible, this is why church fellowship is so important. Because we know when we grow in these things, we understand the tactics of the enemy, which I I am asserting to you because I know it's true about me and I've seen it true in others. The enemy most attacks you. I'm talking about you. I'm not saying you in general. I'm talking about you. The enemy most attacks you by you dismissing small quote-unquote sins and by you not knowing what God expects of you. That is how he attacks the church. Your sins are more than likely, of everybody in here, your sins are more than likely not blood, chaos, and mass carnage. Your sins more than likely are found in the secret corners of your life. We put so much emphasis on the Bible and being around other people because how can you wage war if you don't know who you're fighting and the tactics of your enemy? Most of the Bible is used to teach us how to know to Christ. And if we know Christ and have his spirit, then we can understand the enemy. When I say know Christ, uh, I don't just mean believe and be a Christian. I mean know him in the sense that you are growing in him regularly and often. Sun Tzu in the book The Art of War said this, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself... But not the enemy. For every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. The pr- Christians constantly, we ebb and flow. We go back and forth. We have great victories. We have great defeats. I believe it's because of one or two things. We either don't know ourselves or we don't know the enemy. We know Christ We know what he's done for us. We know how that takes effect in our lives. But we often don't know the tactics that the enemy is using in our lives to keep us down, to prevent us from growing in Christ. Or we don't have enough self-realization to know when we are on the wrong path. Knowing Christ and knowing the enemy gives you peace 
to your soul because you live with the understanding that victory is at hand. The word for soul here is not the innermost being that can never die. Do I have a soul as well as a body? Yes, I have a soul that can never die. That's not what the word soul means here. The word soul here is the all-around sense of everything good and holy in this life. It's a, it's a mindset or disposition. That's how it's used in this verse. It's a part of you that is willing to scrap and fight for what is right and ultimately good for you. I'm reminded of Galatians 5 when I think of this because Peter is saying you can wage war and win. But if you aren't willing to fight and you aren't willing to know yourself and the enemy, then the battle is lost before it begins. Galatians 5.16 talks about spiritual warfare when it says this, But I say, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. This is a fight between the Spirit and the flesh. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. I want to point out by way of side sermon today from Galatians 5 that, um, <coughs> that we see two different ways that the spirit and the flesh take effect. First verse 19 says, the works of the flesh. That means the things that you do because you are naturally a fleshly human being. The works of the flesh. But then that is sort of you working on life. But Galatians 5.22 says this, but the fruit of the spirit... Do you understand the difference? The works of the flesh. If we go on naturally living the way we want to live, the natural result will be the flesh will flesh itself out. <coughs> but if we follow Christ, the fruit of that, this is, the first is us working on something. The second is something working in us. The fruit of, the results of, the effect of Christ in us is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. Against these things there is no law. Do you know what that means? There is no condemnation for those who walk in the Spirit of God. There is no judgment for those who walk in the Spirit of God. Their way is clear. Their path is concise, and the result is always victory. In Galatians 5 and in 1 Peter, we're seeing we have to work hard to do the wrong things because those are works that come out of us. But the fruit of the Spirit of God, the fruit of surrender... The fruit of a willingness to let God be in control of your life is love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. I want us to change our mindset about attainable, holy living that brings peace to our soul. I want to tell you, you probably believe that it's more difficult to live your fleshly life as a Christian than it is to live for Christ. And I would tell you that just a little bit of surrender, proportionally, just a little bit of surrender produces way more positive results in your life than any sort of thing that you can do on your own. The fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of having and living in the Spirit of Christ is peace for your soul. There is no law against that. There is no judgment against that. If you surrender to the Spirit of God, you are above condemnation. You are above judgment. We need to see our sin and our old way of living as not just something we do, but as something we fight against, run from, avoid, kill, whatever thing that you need to hear to motivate you to live in a holy manner. Holy conduct is attainable. Holy conduct gives peace to your soul. Holy conduct gives us a good name. He says, walk in this way. Why do you walk in this way? That they may see your good deeds and glorify God. This may seem wild to you, but people are watching you. You may seem unimportant. You may feel insignificant, but people are watching you. You want to you know if this is true? Just have a spiritual change in your life and tell somebody about it. Because the next time you fail, they are likely to at least give you the side eye or maybe even sort of point it out to you. Your unsaved family, your unsaved friends, when you tell them you're a believer and you have a moment of weakness, they will be the first to tell you how unbelieving you're acting. People are watching you. They're watching your interaction with coworkers. They're watching your interaction when uh, ethical and life decisions are set up to be made. Peter is saying that your holy living not only gives you peace, but it also gives you a good name. Although this shouldn't be our only evangelism plan, Peter says that people will see your good works and they will glorify God. Friends, maybe you came from a rough past. Maybe you still feel like you have some skeletons in your closet that you don't want anyone to know about. Uh, in my life, I have gone on several apology tours for the things that I did and said to people. As a matter of fact, it pains me to think that I'm probably still adding to that list. While our slate with people may never be completely clean, there may be people that we can't reach. There may be people we can't apologize to. They might have passed away. They might have been out of our lives. And I, I wouldn't, the caveat to the apology tour is don't, don't go on an apology tour if it's about you. If people are settled and alone and done and, and you can just leave them alone and just have to live with it, you may just have to live with it. But we may never be fully forgiven in the minds of other people. We may never have a complete clean slate, but holy living can and will transform your name. I've told you this before many times, but the name Holbrook doesn't always elicit the best response from people. And some of that I'm sure that I've probably added to. Uh, but I think at the end of the life of my father and by grace at the end of my life and the life of my sons, 
the name Holbrook will be most associated with our surrender to God. This is something we're working towards. You're not bound to the name that you've been given. You're not bound to the past that your fam- or the present that your family has given you. The Spirit of God leads to holy conduct, which leads to a holy name. Our name will be elevated when we follow Christ in spirit and in truth. You are not stuck to your last name or your family's sins, but instead we can live in such a way that the people of God and others will glorify God by the testimony that they see in us. Holy conduct is attainable. Holy conduct give us, gives us peace to our souls. Holy conduct gives us a good name. And holy conduct is evangelistic in nature. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, they, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. James 3.13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. 1 Thessalonians 4, which we read earlier in verse 11 and 12 says, And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed so that you may walk properly before outsiders. Friends, it's a difficult life to live a life of personal holiness because it is a life of great sacrifice. It is a life of trial. It is a life of error. It is a life of emotional strength and emotional weakness, but also because a life of personal holiness is so different from what is emulated around you or what is seen around you. Non-Christians will often look at you with suspicion and hostility when you act in a manner that honors Christ. This is what Peter's audience was facing. The Christians of that time were faced with much of the same and often worse as we face. They were accused of crimes and witchcraft. They were seen as weird or crazy for following this myth. Roman culture marginalized Christianity as crazy superstition. We know this from multiple Roman history books. It would be tempting to fight fire with fire, to name call, to accuse, to bash others. But this is not how Peter says to respond. He doesn't say when when Roman accusation comes, you're following a myth. He doesn't say, well, no, you're following a myth and here's how. Or, or to post pithy social media posts about uh, how someone is wrong or stupid who doesn't follow the Lord. What he says instead is, when you are met with accusations because you are living above reproach, because there is no law against good conduct, there is no law against living in the Spirit. When you are met with accusations, He says, keep your conduct honorable and above reproach, not get yours, not necessarily fight back. Now, I I don't mean that there aren't moments where we fight back, but I mean generally speaking. When we are met with slander, when we are met with accusations, because we are, when we are living above reproach, They mean nothing. So Peter says, keep your conduct honorable and above reproach so that when they slander you and try to accuse you unjustly, they will not have a leg to stand on. Basically, the war within that's for a health 
that's for health and peace to our soul, is innumerably more important than fighting the war without. The war within, that is, for the sake of others, that they might see your good deeds and glorify your God on the day of visitation, is innumerably, innumerably more important than winning the, the debate, the social media battle. Can I assure you of something? While our gospel presentation and defense are important, it is not our special words or quippy comebacks or, or uh, wise and researched thoughts that bring people to the gospel. It's not well-thought-out arguments or aggressive social media presence. The gospel is most easily received when we live an honorable life worthy of emulation. The gospel is most easily received when people look at us and say, this is different than anything I've seen, and this is something I want. I want, to, I want people to look at me and say, this is a consistent, this is a godly, this is a good person. People are not going to come to Christ if it means I live like I always have, but now I also have to be a social outcast. That is the gospel that we present to people sometimes. Yo, yo, teenagers, I'm just like you. Come look at me, how cool I am. You we're, we're just like each other, guys. Christians, we're relevant, man. We're just like each other. There's not much different except I've got this Jesus who saves, man. It's cool. Sorry, I was trying to act as corny as possible. Did I win? Yeah, thank you. Good. Why would somebody want what you have if what you have is what they already have, but they also have to be hated by people because they call themselves Christians? As a matter of fact, the people who live in that manner, who, whose gospel thrust is to be as much like the world as possible, is to just go on gratifying the desires of the flesh, those people like that are more often pulled into the world that can take the moniker of Christian off and just live the way you want to live than we pulling others out of that life. Why would people want to live for Christ if it meant living like they already lived but having to be judged for being Christian? I'm as mean as I have ever been in my interactions with others. My life generally looks like it did before I came to faith or my life is not marked by honorable things. These are not attractive. It's not attractive to people. The most attractional way you can bring someone to the gospel is to live in a way that honors the Lord and gives them a goal to try to attain. Not haughty, not condescendingly, but in love and peace. 
People are not going to hear our words if we're not living honorably in the public square and think, yep, this seems like the next path I should take. It would be like going to a car dealership with a brand new truck that looks and runs perfectly and trading it in for the same truck that has more miles and is beaten up and trashed. Other than Christ himself, the most important part of Christianity is what he does in our lives every day and our willingness to surrender to that. But there's a cool thing that Peter notes, and you can't miss this, and we'll close with this today. Peter notes that when we live our lives surrendered to Christ in honorable ways in the public square, not only will it change others' opinion about ourselves, but it can even change their own spiritual disposition. It can change their own spiritual destination. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation could mean two things. It could mean the judgment day that's coming. And that this whole general, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This sort of involuntary way of glorifying God. But I don't believe that's what it means. There is another day of visitation. There's another way to look at it. And that is this, that there is a time where salvation will be offered to a person. And when they're measuring the way that they were living and the way that others are living and the way you are living, they see something desirable about the way that you are living and they surrender to the will of the Lord because of the testimony of your life. This is what Peter is saying. That people can come to Christ because of the testimony of your life. Again, not our primary means of evangelism. We are to be gospel proclaimers in word and deed. But it is true that when we live a life in an upright manner, that we are giving a comparison to people that is good and worthy of following. We should live holy lives because someday those that curse your name and deride it might receive the calling of salvation. And how will this affect their willingness to receive the God who saves? I started off today by saying how you live matters. I want to end by saying there is nothing done without consequence. And we must shape our lives in a way that honors God and motivates others, both Christians and non-Christians, to follow Him. What you do matters in this world. Pray with me. God, you're good. You are holy. There is none like you. We praise you because you give us the Spirit of God to know how to love you, to know how to honor you, to know how to follow you. But also you give us the Spirit of God that gives us no option but to do those things. No one can be affect, no one can be hit by such a dynamic power and not be changed. Lord, would you change our lives? Would you work in us? Would you help us to make those small moment by moment incremental changes that honor and glorify you? that give a testimony to others that might be worthy of emulation. Lord, we praise you, we love you, we give you today.
pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.